Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I'm Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I'm a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and technical director of the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our ninth webinar of 2022, and the remaining five for 22 have already been scheduled with great speakers and timely topics. And I will show the next webinar topic and speaker on the last slide today. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and our two distinguished speakers will address them at the end of today's presentation. If we can't get them all in today, we'll have a follow-up podcast to address all of the questions. Viewers attending in the Japan, Australia, and South Africa time zones Please submit your questions during the presentation or the follow-up survey that you will receive after the presentation, and your questions will be answered during the follow-up podcast. A PDF of the slides and some reference materials are now available in the handouts section. There are five handouts there, and there's also a link to a YouTube video in the chat box, and that YouTube video is on the GRS IBS system. That's the topic of today's webinar. The recording of the webinar and the slides and materials will be ma made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. So it's great pleasure to introduce our two distinguished speakers today, Jennifer Nix and Mike Adams of the Federal Highway Administration. Jennifer is going to go first. And so I'll introduce her first. Jennifer Nix is a research geotechnical engineer with the FHWA's Office of Infrastructure R&D at the Turner Fairbank Highway Research Center. For over a decade, she has managed a research program focused on geotechnical infrastructure design. She's a co-author of the Geosynthetics Reinforced Soil Integrated Bridge System Design and Construction Guideline. She earned her bachelor's, master's, and PhD in civil engineering at Texas A&M, where she conducted some excellent research on railway transitions. Uh, our next speaker, our second speaker, is Mike Adams, and he is a research geotechnical engineer with the FHWA Office of Infrastructure R&D, also in McLean, Virginia. Mike has over 25 years of experience in conducting and managing geotechnical research with a focus on geosynthetic reinforced soil technologies. Uh, Mike's a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh and the 2008 Engineering News Record Top 25 Newsmaker and a recipient of the 20, 2009 Nova Award for Construction Innovation in the Development of the GRS-IBS and also a co-author of the FHWA construction Design and Construction Guideline for GRS-IBS which is in the handout section, so you can download it and follow along in the presentation. Okay, so the title of Jennifer and Mike's webinar today is Geosynthetic Reinforced Soil Integrated Bridge System for Transportation Bridge Construction. So Jennifer and Mike, thanks for squeezing this webinar into your busy schedule and joining us from McLean, Virginia. So Jennifer, the controls are yours. Great, thank you, Tim, and hello, everyone. Mike and I are very excited to be here and share some key aspects of the Geosynthetic Reinforced Soil Integrated Bridge System, or GRS-IBS. The IBS was actually developed at Turner Fairbank Highway Research Center by Mike Adams over 20 years ago. And since I joined on board, we've continued to work on research and development, created those design guidelines. The first IBS actually came about in 2005, so there's a lot to share. Obviously, an hour webinar isn't enough to get into all the details, but we figured we'd give you some you know, highlights uh, from materials to design and construction. We'll show some in-service performance data, and then we'll close it out with some of our recent and ongoing research and development that we have at Federal Highway Administration. And ideally, we'll have a lot of time for to answer your questions and engage in a discussion time. So with that, I'll kick it off in terms of background and overview. So what is the GRS-IBS? Well, the integrated bridge system is a fast, cost-effective method of bridge support. 
It's an accelerated bridge construction or ABC. It's within that suite of technologies. And what the IBS does is it actually utilizes GRS technology within three main components. And what GRS is, is just this alternating layer of compacted granular fill and geosynthetic reinforcement. Now, FHWA makes a distinction on the spacing of those reinforcement layers. For the integrated bridge system, the GRS has to have a spacing of 12 inches or less. Most commonly, about eight inches is the reinforcement spacing all the way throughout the abutment. There is a bearing bed reinforcement zone within the GRS abutment right underneath the superstructure's beam seat. So it really is there to accommodate that increased load and reduce the lateral deformation at the face. The third component is the integrated approach, which is just wrap face GRS. And the integrated approach serves several purposes. One is when the superstructure expands and contracts due to thermal cycles, that wrap face actually prevents infiltration or migration of any of that backfill uh, behind the beam end. So you eliminate those buildup of passive earth pressures over time. And that integrated approach actually reduces that need to have a bridge join in there. It also serves in place of an approach slab and a sleeper slab. I mentioned that bearing bed reinforcement in the beam seat, that serves to eliminate traditional bearing pads. So really the IBS eliminated a lot of the bridge uh, design details and really optimized the design into an excellent bridge structure with excellent performance and it alleviates that bump at the end of the bridge because of this integrated approach and the same composite material for the abutment. So I mentioned the three main components. You start out with the reinforced soil foundation. On top of that is the GRS abutment. And then you finish that with that GRS integrated approach behind the superstructure. So those three components are what comprise that integrated bridge system that we refer to. Now for GRS, we consider it analogous to concrete. So concrete, you have different ingredients that go into the mix. You have aggregate, water, cement, sometimes some admixtures. Mix all those together and you get a new composite material that we call concrete. And that has its own engineering properties, own stress strain behavior. You change the aggregate or the water to cement ratio, you still get that composite concrete, but then it has different engineering properties. Same for the geosynthetic reinforced soil, except the ingredients are aggregate and that closely spaced geosynthetics. And closely spaced, again, is anything less than that 12 inches. And then usually there's a facing element as well. But you can see we've performed load tests on these large scale GRS mini piers or performance tests that we call them. And so each of these are a different composite material. It had different backfill, different reinforcement strengths and stiffnesses. We have played around with different spacing so we could really understand the composite properties of a broad range of GRS structures that would be built uh, in our bridge inventory. And from that, we have actually more performance tests that I mentioned that we performed. And this is how we kind of determine that boundary of closely spaced versus larger. When you get to that 12 inches that I mentioned, we know it behaves as a composite material. As the spacing gets larger, that's what we refer to as mechanically stabilized earth technology or MSC, which I'm sure you're all aware of. And from these performance tests, we saw at four inches or eight inches, again, we're getting this composite mass that fails as a single unit. You can see that classic shear uh, failure that you would expect. When you get to larger space systems, now you see something different. This is a 16 inch system. Now the soil is failing independently. That geosynthetic isn't really contributing much. So MSC kind of more behaves like a tieback. Uh, so there are different design considerations and design philosophies. And that was one of the impetus of, you know, putting forth the FHWA design guidelines. It's not just the technology of the integrated bridge system, but the design that goes with it that really accounts for this composite behavior where you can then optimize the design of your bridge. And we have, like I mentioned, tested a bunch of different geosynthetic uh, GRS composites. So again, different aggregates, reinforcements, uh, strengths, stiffnesses, and we have a database. There's a research report you can uh, Google online and download that, that gives you all of this data. 
Now, if you're designing a bridge that has the same aggregate reinforcement facing and spacing, you could just use one of these curves and design accordingly. If you know your applied pressure, typically for bridge loads, we're limited about five, 4,000 pounds per square foot. So you can see we're way down here in terms of that ultimate capacity that a GRS composite can uh, withstand. But at that 4,000, if you went over to your curve, you could then estimate your deformation. So it's really a change in um, philosophy in terms of how you design this. And with that, we know that it produces predictable performance. In this case, this bottom left, we had a performance test result. There were five in-service bridges that used the same aggregate reinforcement spacing and facing. You can see the measured settlements line up right along that performance test or stress strain curve that we uh, saw. So again, very predictable performance. And that extends as well to lateral deformation. And lateral deformation with GRS, it's actually unique in geotechnical engineering. There's the postulate of zero volume change, which essentially relates to a Poisson's ratio of 0.5, which again is not heard of. But what that says is any settlement you see at the top is expressed as lateral deformation at the base. We saw these in performance tests, past experience, experiments, and now we can actually prove that with in-service performance. So having that predictability is one main advantage of GRS, but there's a lot of other benefits. So why consider the IBS? You know, we mentioned it's cost-effective. Some agencies have realized up to 60% lower costs. And, we, and when we think about the amount of bridges in our inventory that need replacement, when we can stretch those taxpayer dollars and build more bridges for the price of one, then we're in a good spot. I already mentioned accelerated bridge construction. Uh, some transportation agencies have built an entire bridge from demolition of the existing bridge to the GRS IBS open to traffic in 10 days. So it, it can be very quick. Part of that is because there's no specialized labor required. Um, the tools and equipment that you need are readily available. Again, nothing specialized. And it's a simple design. There's no sort of proprietary, this block goes with that aggregate, goes with that reinforcement. You can use any combination that meets the material specifications. And we do have those design guidelines that Tim mentioned that you can download or view online to get that. And I mentioned that function of the IBS and that integrated approach to alleviate that, alleviate that bump at the end of the bridge. So reduce cost, reduce construction time, and excellent performance. You know, it's hard to beat, but it's not going to be for every site, every bridge condition. So it's just design considerations you need to think about. Now for materials, there are three primary materials that comprise a GRS. The structural backfill, I mean, that accounts for you know, 90 plus percent of the actual GRS integrated bridge system. And you have the geosynthetic reinforcement and then some sort of facing element. So I'll get a little bit more into detail on those three. For the backfill, it needs to be a structural backfill. This is a bridge system. We want to reduce deformations, have the capacity to support the bridge loads. So there are material specifications for the backfill, namely that friction angle has to be greater than 38. And for all these structural backfills, what we're finding is that's not a problem to meet in terms of the specifications. You can use either open graded or well graded backfill. Open graded backfill, we typically suggest if the abutment is gonna be next to a waterway or there's potential for flooding or inundation in the future because this open graded material is free draining. So as soon as the water comes in, it'll immediately flow out. You won't build up hydrostatic pressures behind uh, the wall face. The well-graded aggregates, those are more common, I would say, uh, in traditional construction. They are a little bit stronger and stiffer than open-graded aggregates. So there are trade-offs depending what you're looking for. For the reinforcement, it's really kind of any geosynthetics, typically geogrids or geotextiles. Again, we have material specifications that it must meet uh, for reinforcement strength, typically a minimum of 4,800 pounds per foot. We also specify a strength at 2% to account for stiffness and lateral deformations. I'll say the vast majority of IBSs around the country use a woven polypropylene geotextile uh, for ease of construction. For facing types, you can really have your, your choice and what makes sense for the project. 
you saw those mini peer experiments or those large scale performance tests where it didn't have any facing and it still withstood even under failure loads, there was no catastrophic failure. So the facing doesn't, we don't consider it to serve a strong structural component to the IBS, although it does provide that. But really the facing is more of a formwork, a facade, uh, and to prevent any loss of material due to the natural elements. Most common are modular block walls. Uh, there's also been dry wet, cat or wet cast blocks, also full high panels. In this case, it was actually a sheet pile wall because they used that for the scour protection at the site as well. And when you have that closely spaced systems, you're really eliminating or reducing actually that lateral earth pressures against the face. So uh, there are a lot of options, as I mentioned. The most commonly are modular blocks just because of uh, ease of placement, they're readily available. Uh, concrete masonry units or CMUs are probably most common just because they're lightweight and easy to place. But again, just like the backfill and the reinforcement, the blocks or your facing element has to meet some certain material specifications. Now, moving on to fundamental design principles. Again, we could spend a whole day just going into the nitty gritties of design, all the equations and that. But again, it's simple. It's just we don't want to hammer that out right now. So we're just going to give a brief overview. Again, we have the design and construction guidelines that are available. It walks you through step by step the design process as well as the construction practices that are recommended. And we have different empirical based on those performance tests or analytical design procedures, so equations that you can use to estimate capacity and deformations. And there are design examples that walk you through the design with a real world application. And the design steps are fairly straightforward as with any bridge system. You start by establishing the project requirements. You go out to the site, perform a subsurface investigation, a hydraulic analysis. All of that will tell you, is the GRS IBS the right fit for that conditions in the site that you're looking at? If it's not, you can move to a different foundation technology, but it does seem to work in a lot of cases. The biggest changes or design steps that are unique to GRS IBS is the layout of the IBS. So for each of those three components of the IBS, we have some guidance. For the RSF, we have guidance on depth of embedment as well as um, the width of the RSF. For the GRS abutment, we have information on what the reinforcement schedule is, especially as you go up the cut slope, guidance on that bearing bed reinforcement, BMC, and the integrated approach, which should go past the cut slope so that it ties in the roadway approach to the bridge system. The biggest other difference is that internal stability analysis. Again, a lot of people see these three ingredients, they look the exact same as the MSC technology, just with a change in that reinforcement spacing. But there is a difference in that internal stability. When you have the closely spaced systems, now let's say pullout is in a failure mode anymore. There's also different equations for your required reinforcement strength, because now those take into account the size and strength of your backfill, your reinforcement strength, and your spacing. So it's a whole different ballgame that really allows you to optimize the design. We actually tested this out on one of the first true MSC abutments in our country. It was the Founders Meadows Bridge in Colorado. And at the time, it was designed according to the AASHTO LRFD bridge specifications, which are geared for their traditional mechanically stabilized earth. And we said, OK, what if we designed it according to the current IBS guidelines? And you can see there's a quite a stark difference in the cross sections. The most immediate is the length of the reinforcement. We don't have to go out to that 0.7H at the base. We also see that that then reduces the amount of your excavation limits, which cuts costs considerably. We see that with the integrated approach, you don't need that approach slab or sleeper slab. And one of the biggest differences is with that IBS and the capacity that you get you can actually put your bridge beams or your superstructure closer to the face and have increased loads, which once you have that, you no longer have this huge setback and increased bearing area to reduce the loads for this to MSC to support. That reduces your superstructure span length. That's huge cost in itself. So we estimated, you know, these costs were back in the time, so I'm sure they're greatly increased today, but 
you know, there's over a 67% increase in just material costs alone. But, you know, again, with that reduced excavation, you know, the labor cost would also be uh, somewhat reduced. But so that is one of the things with Federal Highway. Again, it's not just the technology of the integrated bridge system, but the design that takes into account the composite behavior that goes with it. And we do have a design spreadsheet that's available that kind of automates the design process since it is a simple sort of process. That's available if you want to contact us or you need that uh, information. But I will say, you know, regardless of the design that you put in, what matters is how is it constructed, regardless how well you did in the design. So with that, I will turn it over to Mike Adams to get on the construction procedures. Thank you, Jennifer. Next slide. While you all look at those bullet points, I'm gonna cover those, but first I'd like to make a few remarks about the IBS in terms of, in relation to construction. Like all earthwork projects, aside from design checks for internal stability and external stability, and understanding the project requirements, what really ensures adequate serviceability and performance of the IBS is the quality of construction and following through on the details of design. An advantage of the IBS is the flexibility to modify the layout to better fit the field conditions because it's a modular system with the modular blocks. It's also important to understand that the IBS is a complete redesign from the bottom up of the traditional bridge, removing many of the common elements. And it's still somewhat confusing between the two in current practice. And actually in numerous cases, I've seen cut sheets from traditional bridges included in the uh, standard sheets, which have led to minor issues during construction or even after construction. Um, it, the IBS is also, is a gravity wall abutment. And it was formulated similar to the old stone wall abutments built in the early 1990s, but with geosynthetics instead of masonry. The central piece of equipment in the IBS is the TRACO. And it's important that the TRACO logistically is placed in the right spot. It has sufficient size to really to do the job. You know, it's, it's in the, the layout of the project field is real important on the bringing in the aggregate and moving the block product onto the, onto the um, abutment face or the abutment <clears throat> footprint. Next slide. Another equipment on the, uh, out on the uh, job is the compactor. And many of these small bridges we build are small abutments and they have, they're maybe 40, 45 feet wide and large compaction equipment doesn't really fit in the, on, the, on the footprint. So it's best to use small compaction equipment, although on some of the larger interstate bridges, we've used um, larger compaction equipment and typically it's this vibratory plate tamper. The building the IBS is rather labor intensive. So anything you can do to minimize, um, you know, heavy, heavy labor lifting for the labor crew is certainly helpful. And one thing is the pallet lifter. It's, um, it's a, a pallet lifter which can move the cubes of blocks onto the footprint. So the um, laborers can easily move them to the abutment face and, and place the block. Block each, some of the uh, modular blocks weigh as much as like maybe a hundred pounds, close to that. But the split face CMU shown there with the gentleman cutting it is about 45 pounds. Next slide. Other other hand common hand tools are level string lines, shovels, spade shovels, flat blade shovels, rakes, and concrete spreaders work really well with the finer open graded aggregate. Next, the mallet's handy tool to align the block. And uh, these little block lifting tongs are kind of nice to have too on the job site. Construction begins with the excavation of the RSF. And many of these bridges are built adjacent to uh, waterways, streams, and small rivers. A lot of times they have to build a temporary coffer to dewater the excavation. In this case here, they took concrete ingots, wrapped it with geosynthetics, a couple sandbags, a little berm to excavate their RSF to pump it dry. 
Next, please. Um, building the RSF, it's always handy or, or wise to slope it to drain where you can uh, bleed any bleeding water into the under the side to pump it out. This uh, job here was the one of the biggest bridges we built to date. It was over consolidated clay, so there wasn't much water filtration. The RSF begins with that uh, layer of geosynthetic on the bottom with one foot increments of layers of uh, compacted fill, typically a well-graded gravel with uh, layers of geosynthetic. And when you get to the top, you fold it over like a burrito. There's a sump pump in the other corner, which is frequently used. Next slide. Here's the, study, the, the reinforcement schedule for the RSF. If you notice on the, um, the cross section there on the bottom, the reinforcements laid like the shingles on a roof in the direction of the water flow in the event that the, the scour, it doesn't infiltrate that layer of reinforcement. That's a very important detail. And then the reinforcement is wrapped over on those little, little squiggly things there on the ends to um, fold over after you after you uh, build the RSF to the desired height. Again, it's it's um, the reinforcement schedules like that of a shingle on a roof. Slide overlaps of two feet. Here we can see how the reinforcements placed on the RSF from one end to the other. Uh, oh, back there, I guess that's uh, University of Delaware instrumenting that with some sandbags in the corner. If you guys are like looking at photos, he's doing some instrumentation in there, burying some of the earth pressure cells. Uh, the track goes placing fill. Next slide. Here they are moving along with the uh, construction of the RSF, placement of the fill and compacting it. Next slide. You see the, uh, the pipe there to divert the water. And then in this case here, they encapsulated the RSF, but in reality, it's not necessary to do that. You can wrap it over three to four feet and be done with it because if, trust me, if the water gets under the abutment, you got a lot more problems than the sheet of reinforcement covering the RSF. Next slide. In some cases, actually, a lot of the um, locals We'll build uh, the new abutment, the new bridge under behind the existing old old abutment wall. Um, those uh, paint stripes on the on the abutment wall are they going to they intend probably in this case here to build a rat face wall up to a certain height and then follow up with the block. Next slide. Placement of the first course is really the most important. If you get it right. The rest of the job will go easy. You check a level of the block both longitudinally and transversely. Um, you can scrape a little bit of aggregate under the block, but if you get more than a half inch or so, we would recommend you put a, a dry mix, either mortar mix or a fine sand mix, a concrete, dry concrete under the level of block out in case to avoid any erosion and undermining of that, of that layer of um, fill. Next slide. Um, an, an alternative to the putting the uh, block directly on the RSF is to cast a, a, a precast, a, excuse me, cast in place a, um, a leveling pad. I'm not a big fan of that. I think that's very labor intensive. You have to wait for it to cure. It just adds time and effort to the construction. Next slide. Um, during construction, it's important to scrape the top of the block off with the flat blade shovel, sweep it clean. Some use a um, backpack blower, you know, to, to clean it off. You really don't want any point load on the on the block to block, and it just just helps to keep the uh, face level and aesthetically pleasing. Next slide. By tapping the block with the rubber mallet, you reference the alignment of the block on the back, not the front. You see the string lines there on both. Um, in the bottom, the gentleman's placing pins in there to keep the block aligned, but um, you know, we use a frictionally connected system. The pins aren't really necessary because it's truly internally supported. Next slide. Some of the corner details, uh, there's a lot of options on that. A lot of proprietary systems have special blocks for the corners, but with the uh, generic CMU, these counties have come up with a lot of innovative ways to do it. They have a, just a corner block there. They, they did a skewed abutment there in the lower left where they just uh, did an angle on the block. Oh, that's the, that, 
that block there, you can cut it and then you have to put a hoop, a piece of hoop rebar in there every once in a while and fill that up with um, mortar or concrete mix. On the bottom left, they can do a skewed abutment and they just sometimes they offset the, the block. It, you know, it, it, they don't really care. It's, uh, it's all gonna be embedded anyway. Uh, an alternative, alternative way with the rectangular blocks is to do, a, you can do a concave wing wall very easily where it's straight until you get to the wing wall and then you can curve it out and the abutment still fits on the, on the, at the face of the abutment face quite well. Next slide. Now, there's two types of reinforcements, you know, the, the biaxial and the uniaxial. The advantage of the biaxial is you can tie directly into the wing wall, whereas if you have a uniaxial, you've got to lay some reinforcement against the wing wall to reinforce it, and that just adds cost and time. Next slide. You know, uh, the geotextiles are really nice they, they, for this type of construction. The, uh, the strong stiffest direction is in the... Uh, cross machine direction and you can just roll the roll parallel to the face and fit it to work. Uh, sometimes they would fit the reinforcement schedule, they'll get a chainsaw and cut the whole roll in half to meet the uh, reinforcement schedule to facilitate quick construction. Or sometimes they pre-cut it up, up on the top and bring down sheets at one sheet at a time. Down there's an example in the lower right of a no-no, uh, you kind of want the reinforcement to be tight, probably they would have uh, Pulled that tight before placement of the film material. Next slide. Here they are with a pre-cut sheet, putting it out over the block. Um, you really the frictional connection. We try to get you know 90%, but you know 80% is just fine. 80% frictional frictional coverage is just fine for the for construction. Notice how the um, how small the abutment is. Really, the compaction equipment shoved in the far corner. You know, it's, it's a pretty tight in there sometimes for some of these uh, two lane bridges. Next slide. Oh, go, uh, go back, go back. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In this case here, you notice the two color block, the red block and the white block. The red block is a, a scour indicator and that will be um, covered, armored with riprap. And if you see red, you know you need to go back and inspect your bridge. Something the riprap is moved, and that is the scour apron down there, which the riprap was placed on, and that's tied into the first course of block. Next slide. These are just some, you know, with the IBS and with composite GRS, you really don't need to overlap the reinforcement. You just don't want the seam to be vertically throughout the whole uh, abutment height. You can stagger the seams, and here they are overlapping the reinforcement, and that's just a, um, it's not necessary. Next slide. Here, um, again, this one wing wall is very large and they couldn't cover it all with one sheet of reinforcement. So they had to do two sheets of reinforcement. And you see on the corner there, they, they trimmed it out because when you overlap the reinforcement, you're doubling the height of the, of the, um, of the space, the, 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 that area. And so when you start stacking block on that, they get out of alignment if you do it. So you have to trim it out if you, if you wanna overlap reinforcement. That's very important to keep your block aligned. Next slide. So, and a lot of folks, they tend to put a little extra coverage, uh, frictional coverage on that, and you end up with reinforcement sticking out. It's okay if the wall's embedded, but a lot of times you have to come back and trim it and then burn it off with a weed burner or something like that. So your, your ultimate goal is to get that clean finish base. Next. Placement of the fill is kind of a trick. You really want to place it from the front of the face to the back. So you can roll out any folds in the reinforcement as the fill is being placed. And you really don't want to use a tooth bucket because that can go down there and pinch the reinforcement. The guys sometimes get clumsy with the, the operator and he sort of jags the reinforcement and chucks it. So you have to fix that up. But anyway, it's good just to place the reinforcement from the front to the back to get the folds out. Next. Uh, there's a, a beautiful example of fill placement. These guys were pros. Um, they're placing the fill from the front to the back. The red, the red block wall, you see that nice corner detail in there where they're turning that one corner block to the right angle of the face, and that's great for placing of the next course on that stretcher bond. Next course, next up, um, slide, please. Compaction of the behind the face is a trick. It's unique for every fill material and block. You just, it's kind of a learned process. You get it together after the first few courses. 
one good trick is to get that compaction right behind the block is a step on and rot it with the end of the shovel real quick. And then after that, you can drive the compactor up near it without moving the block. Next slide. There they are running the compactor. You definitely have to use lighter compaction um, directly behind the block. Um, a larger compactor will tend to push it out a little bit. It doesn't affect performance, just a serviceability and aesthetics issue with the heavier tampers back behind it. Next slide. Uh, again, different compaction equipment. Some of the bigger abutments, again, they could get a roller out there, but then you have to find some place to park it during construction. You can use a trench roller as shown there with a sheep's foot on it. It works just fine as well, more so for the uh, well-graded aggregates as opposed to the open. Next slide. Um, you can use both structural backfills, as Jennifer said. The open graded time is money. It's a method spec of doing open graded. You compact a non-movement, whereas with the well graded, it's a little bit stiffer, but you have to do a density check based on the moisture density proctor, which adds time. You can the open graded also affords the ability of uh, constructing an all-weather, wet, freezing. It doesn't matter. You can just lay the open graded out and compact it. So. You know, labor today is pretty expensive. Materials are relatively cheap. A long time ago, it was the other way around. Um, you can build it faster with the open graded aggregate and, and save a lot on labor. Next slide. Some of the details at the top of the wall we're going to chat about a little bit real quick here. I'm going to go real fast is the uh, pin and grouting, the top three courses. The wall's easy to put together. It's easy to take apart. You want to lock it all together. We're going to talk a little bit about the barren bed reinforcement, which bears the which sort of distributes the load directly under the, the bridge, the dead load of the bridge, and then the wrapped layers directly behind the setback. Next slide. Here, these guys, again, they were very unique. Here's a straight bridge with a, uh, um, a sloped on the superstructure, 2% on each side. And they would trim, they would trim the uh, upper block to match that grade. And you see the little arch there on the red line. That's the trim the block and a little setback there. And then they will come in and uh, pin and grout that section first. Pin that second. And then they'll build the wing walls and parapet walls later to button up the structure. Next slide. And here they are doing the setback. It's typically done with four inches of uh, foam board. And in this case here, they're um, Clear space was such that they could use a patio block, a four inch by you know, four inch thick uh, dry cast concrete unit. They set it right on the uh, foam board. Uh, next slide. And then they'll build the uh, wrap face directly behind the setback. And here they are wrapping it. And those are, again, that would be again to match the uh, height of the foam board and then again to match the height of the uh, patio block. Next uh, slide. With two layers of that in there. It's all good to separate the distribute the load of the uh, bridge. Here the here the, uh, the the construction guy, the laborer, he's setting it out. He's scratching it all flat to meet the patio block because that was again built to the slope of the cut block to match the grade of the superstructure. Sloping uh, the slope of the superstructure. Next slide. And uh, there's a bridge sitting right there on the um, on the on the GRS abutment. Look how close it is to the face. That's pretty impressive. Next slide. Um, placement of the beams. It's uh, you got to get a good crane operator. You don't be bouncing the beams around, dragging the reinforcement around. You just want to go get it into place, set it down, put your post tensioning rods in, uh, grout it, and be done with it. Some of these bridges we built with steel superstructure, so that's a little more complicated. You have to do a cast, a, a cast in place footing. Sometimes it's precast mod, and then you, then you ground them together. You have to do a little rebar, uh, to rebar in the back of the uh, cast in place footing, um, and then to tie in the back wall. Then you got to uh, cast in cheek walls. So it's typically a three-stage pour, but that's what it is for the larger span bridges. Then you come in later and you finish up with your wing walls and. Uh, parapet walls. Next slide. And again, then you grout and, and do those. And so concrete coping is a nice trick. After you build your wing walls and parapet walls, you come in and you pin and grout the top three courses and you can cap it with a wet grass concrete for a nice aesthetically pleased finish. There you have an example of a con a cave, convex, excuse me, or concave um, vex. Getting mixed up and a little dyslexic. But anyway, you get a nice um, finish there. 
Here we have the integrated approach, and that's the um, you extend those reinforcement layers past the cut slope, and they're one foot lifts with compacted graded gravel wrapped face against the wall. You also can wrap the sides to prevent lateral spreading of the fill material, which typically happens on approach ways. And that really confines that fill material during thermal cycles. Next slide. Um, there's all sorts of ways to build the integrated approach. Here's an example of a, a timber bridge with an asphalt base layer up to the bottom of the deck, and then they just finished it off with a surface layer. Next slide. Oh, we do have a geomembrane. We can put water, waterproofing membrane over the deck. We frequently do that and extend it over three feet. That keeps the uh, beams dry, and that extension of that prevents water infiltration below the um, below the uh, the beam where the beams uh, beams are embedded in the earth. So we do use geomembranes. Okay, next slide. Um, here's just an example of a cast-in-place uh, deck and the finished product. And I visited this bridge about two years after it was constructed and that yellow paint line, they had to scrape off the asphalt there because it didn't meet as well. But the, the paint over the, in the middle of the red, yellow stripes, it wasn't even cracked. It's pretty impressive after two years of service. Next slide. That's the scour apron. Um, we put the riprap on that I've already described. Next slide. Performance, real quick. We've instrumented many of these bridges, those little shiny things at the abutment face, those are survey targets to measure the um, movement, lateral movement and vertical movement of the, uh, of the wall. We also measure the settlement of the superstructure and you subtract the two, that's the compression in the GRS. Next slide. We've instrumented many of these bridges with uh, lateral earth pressures, both vertical and lateral, we put inclinometers at the face of the abutments and behind the back wall in there that was pre-installed and built up around it. And later to um, set up the, um, once the bridge is completed, we uh, continuously monitor performance. Next slide. Here's a bridge that uh, I'll highlight a little bit. Uh, you see the IPI on the end wall with the lateral pressure cell. We'll compare those two. You can see on the other three lateral pressure cells in the, on the gravel base underneath the beam seat, we've monitored that, but I don't have time to show it, how the superstructure goes through thermal interaction. You can see some changes in the vertical pressure between the ends of the, the width of the abutment. Um, next slide. Okay, here we go. This is a lateral earth pressure cell over the course of, um, excuse me, the IPI in the top over a course of five years. And you can see the cyclic moving of it. You can also see the inflection point of the IPI near the base of the abutment. And that's the IPI moving with the uh, abutment. The one on the face is kind of, is just as interesting. I should have included that as well. But on the bottom, you see the lateral deformation versus the lateral um, pressure. And so you can see how the lateral earth pressure on the back walls of both abutments and the IPIs follow the cyclic change, the seasonal change. You also see daily spikes in the pressure cell. So that the beam is moving and very compatibly with the superstructure. Next slide. This is settlement of the um, recorded settlement of that bridge through time. You see the primary settlement. Um, and then you see um, some secondary uh, creep settlement. And what we do is we plot that settlement to a semi-log plot, fit it to a curve, and forecast it out to 100 years. And uh, we've done, we have a bunch of other experiments that we've done this true. So we're forecasting that settlement up to 100 years. And it shows here on the north abutment 1.5 strain and on the south abutment 1.1. We designed for 2% 2, 2 strain throughout 100 years. So it fits pretty well. Next slide. And these are the three bridges. They're all steel girder that we steel girder structures that we've um, are monitoring continuously. The Tiffin River was the first one back in 2006, and the other two are more are 105 footers. But you know the thermal substructure superstructure interaction of these bridges is pretty unique. They're not restrained. They're not unrestrained. They're a little of both, but a little bit unrestrained, more unrestrained than restrained. And it's kind of unique because when the bridge goes through thermal movements the whole abutment moves with it. The face and the abutment move together, which makes it very compatible. It's kind of unique. Next slide. Jennifer, you're up. 
Great, thank you, Mike. Just need to get situated again. So yes, so that gives you a brief overview of you know design, construction, materials. But what are we still doing at Federal Highway in terms of our research and development? Well, some recent completed research was looking at that bump at the end of the bridge. We know that the GRS IBS alleviates it, but that had all been based more on anecdotal evidence driving across the roadway and where's the bridge. But we actually wanted to quantify that. And so we teamed up with our long-term performance program and they have high-speed inertial profilers that you can go in and measure the profiles along the bridges. And so we measured some GRS bridges. We also mentioned some conventional bridges that were in the same location or locale as the GRS. And you can see with conventional, as you'd expect, that bump at the end of the bridge. This one's interesting because you can see this actually had an approach slab, which is meant to mitigate that bump, but then you just kind of have another bump at the end of the approach slab. For the GRS, minimal differences. And so we have we have a report out there. It's one of the handouts that you can download. And we did a statistical analysis of all this pavement profiler data to look at different conditions that might make it better or worse. We looked at the case in New York since they had a lot of GRSs and a lot of conventional bridges that we measured. And as you can see, if we place it in terms of an international roughness index, which is more on the pavement performance side, you can see a stark difference. So uh, quantifiably, GRS alleviates that bump at the end of the bridge. Just a few years ago, completed a shallow foundation scour study in collaboration with our hydraulics unit. So this is in their multifunctional plume system. And they built up a GRS abutment. And this was all generic to shallow foundations. But since GRS was being promoted, it was a good opportunity to see how these respond. And they were more looking at different countermeasure designs. Since these are sometimes in narrow openings, is there something different than if you had a wide, wider bridge system? And so they have come out with new guidelines for countermeasures that will be reflected in the updates to their hydraulic engineering circulars. But I wanted to point out this uh, experiment. So in this experiment, they didn't have any riprap, so no countermeasure along the GRS, and they let the flume run until equilibrium scour conditions. And you can see without the countermeasures, obviously part of the GRS washed away. The aggregate and facing element moved out. But what was interesting is this portion up here represented the superstructure. The movement of this was negligible. So even though you had all of this deformation or washout down here, the GRS is able to redistribute those pressures and you don't see it at the top where your superstructure is. So obviously we would never recommend don't have scour countermeasures because scour is a cause of leading cause of bridge failure. So we want to protect our bridges. But you can see just how resilient these GRS systems are through that experiment. Some ongoing research, we have large-scale performance tests as well as the mini-peer experiments that we're doing long-term dead load. So how do these perform after five, after 10 years? So we can actually do that at Turner Fairbank because we have this space, the resources, and the time. And so we're looking at different combinations of the different GRS composites and how do they relate to this superstructure movement as well. We also have these mini abutments, which are different shapes. We've been using these uh, more square performance tests to look at that composite and engineering properties. How does that shape differ? And so we have a lot of instrumentation on all of these. And again, we're evaluating that data with the ultimate goal is, can we refine GRS IBS design even further and optimize you know, savings and time and performance? So there's a lot more to come with that. And I know we're near the end of our time. so. I will turn it back over to Tim and thank you all for your attention. We're happy to answer any questions. Great, Jennifer, thank you. And thanks to Mike uh, for a great presentation. We have a number of questions here. So I'm just gonna dive right in. Oh, first thing is a couple comments. The FHWA 21 document, Jennifer, that you just referenced, uh, we could only post five handouts in the handout section, so that will be on the FGI website, and Jen's going to email it to some people that have already asked for it. So uh, others that are looking for it, it'll be on the website. Okay, here we go. Uh, Mike and Jennifer, you can decide who answers these questions. What kind of laboratory test is used for GRS? Is it compress, compressive com 
compression test. Yeah, so that load test, those uh, performance tests or mini peer experiments that we have, those are all static compression tests. So we just load it up until failure, measure the deformations. With those large scale experiments, we actually uh, have the opportunity with those decommissioned girders that it's supporting, uh, they put in some vibration or vibration to look at impacts to the superstructure, but we can use that to evaluate sort of that transient load that would be on a GRS structure, but we're not seeing uh, any sort of deformations or increased response due to transient loads, just those static loads. Okay, next, approximately how many bridges have been have used this method and are these particular areas of the United States where there are more where they are more applicable? They are, we, I think we have probably over 300, maybe 400. We've sort of lost count of how many have been built. Um, they're mostly done in the um, local level of the of transportation, the counties, municipalities. Um, a lot of the state DOTs are slowly taking notice and joining in on it. There's a one, one or two on the interstate, the folks in um, Connecticut and Utah, the DOTs have built a few there and in Rhode Island as well. So it, it, um, it's, it's, uh, the water's over the dam and um, the technology's advancing. Great. Yeah, I would say it's definitely over 32 states that have implemented that we're aware of. Um, but yeah, like Mike said, it's hard to keep track of, so. Okay, next for the shingling detail, should the upper panel shingle over the lower panel with the lower panel downstream from the upstream, uh, from the upper panel or something different? It's um, the, the, the lowest reinforcement layers on the upstream side. Um, so that the water flows under all the reinforcement layers. And I think you might apply that to a landfill. I, I, if you, I think I would apply that to the landfill, but in reverse because the water would be flowing on the top. On the top. So you want to just shingle it so the water stays below. Right. Okay, great. Um, uh, can you use clay, mat clay material for the backfill? Jennifer, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the it's thing. A, you know, it's, a stock, it's, a, that it's a bridge. Yeah, it is a structural backfill because, yeah, like we say, it is a bridge system. Now, is there an opportunity in terms of there's a low-risk structure that's all that's available? Perhaps. We just don't have data to, to support what that behavior might be, especially for those long-term, because we know geosynthetics can creep over time. With those granular backfills, those don't you know, creep over time in a sense. So they, it holds it all together. So that's one consideration you would have to think about. You could, but time of construction would be tough to compact the um, cohesive material. Um, would it work? Probably. Would it work a long time? I can't guarantee that. Okay. Um, next, does the type of compaction machine affect the structural arrangement of the geosynthetics? You not really no but you you'd certainly don't want to you want to put some cover on it when you compact it um near the face we typically use a lighter compactor and further away you can use any compactor available um it's uh it's typically it's a vibratory plate tamper you can use a trench roller on well graded well graded fill material okay just FYI, there's probably still about 20 more questions and I'm not sure we'll get through them all, but here's another compaction one. Does the GRS IBS system have the same minimum compaction requirements as an MSE wall? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, is there a limit to how much settlement the abutments can be designed for, or is it mainly related to the reinforcement length and uh, reinforcement strength and spacing? It is related to you know the strength and spacing, but in terms of what a tolerable deformation is, that's up to the owner or the engineer. Um, these can accommodate you know quite a lot of settlements, and especially if you're on a single span structure, no matter how much it settles, as long as you don't get that differential and you still have the clearance that you might need, um, there's not many considerations or concerns there. Okay, um, we, we follow the Poisson's ratio zero Poisson's uh, ratio, so two uh, EL equal two EV. Um, so it'll strain 1% for every 2% it goes out. 
Okay. Is it the other way around? I forget. I keep that derivation, but that's pretty much it. So we we calculate the amount of strain it's going to have to 100 years, and is that serviceable? Yes. Okay. Information. It's very different from MSC. Okay. In that respect. Uh, Jennifer, you showed some laboratory tests of scour in in your laboratory there, and there's a number of questions here about that. The scouring. Did it occur with clear water or dirty water in, in the flume? Those were all clear water experiments. Okay. Um, did you consider, uh, was it consider an, an armored riverbed or what, what was the channel like uh, upstream of the bridge? In those experiments, it was just a fine sand, so there was no armor along that sort of plexiglass you know, flume wall. Uh, there was kind of, you know, riprap around the abutment in some cases uh, to serve as, you know, sort of that embankment protection, but that's the, it's isolated to the abutment location. Okay, so that maybe answers the next question. Is the sediment considered uniform or non-uniform? You said it was a fine sand, so I guess that's uniform. Right, which is the worst case scenario in, in scour conditions. You know, Mike showed all those bridges, you know, where it's over-consolidated clay and they don't have those sorts of issues. That's going to behave differently in scour than a fine sand, of course. Right. Uh, have you started to look at using the GRS design methodology in typical MSE applications to reduce the need for higher connection loads or starting to look at less ideal backfill materials? Yes and no. I will answer that. Okay. Um, the ID, the GRS is a niche technology, and does it really compete with a quarter mile long road? Probably not. You would probably want to work with MSE if you were building a long, long wall. It doesn't, doesn't fit there. It's a niche technology for uh, smaller applications. You certainly can build a GRS wall. You would have to change the reinforcement schedule to fit that. Um, and what was the other part of that question? Um or starting to look at less ideal backfill materials to be used. And I yeah, think that's... you can build with marginal fill material. Yeah. Um, right now we're focusing on, you know, we have built walls with marginal fill material, but right now we're focused on bridge support applications, low bearing applications where you'd certainly want to use in a highly uh, high quality structural backfill with a good friction angle to, to get uniform performance. Okay. Yeah, and I will say, if I can add to the MSC comment, one other option is with a traditional MSC is to increase the spacing of the reinforcement just at the face, kind of like that secondary tail. Uh, that'll reduce some of the connection requirements, but again, a different technology. Yeah, yeah and, and we don't see the connection requirements in GRS. You can take the face off and it'll perform nearly just as well as it would with the face. So there is no, there's a difference between uh, lateral pressure and uh, internal stress in the structure. The internal stress is there the same as it would be because it all follows soil mechanics. The lateral pressure is not there. The lateral thrust against the face is not there because of the composite behavior. It's kind of a kind of a hard thing to think about. Actually, Mike, I'm glad you mentioned that because Jennifer's diagram that showed the shorter reinforcement in the bottom of the wall for the GRS versus the MSE, I think people may have struggled with. Well, you, you know, and I'll even say this, that, you know, if I were to put strong reinforcement in a wall, it would be in the middle third, it wouldn't be at the bottom. It's where it deforms laterally, that's where you need it. Yeah. And if yeah. you squeeze something that wants to bulge out in the middle. So that's where, you know, that's my thought on it all. You know, you want to put it in the middle where it wants to deform. Okay, let, let me see if we can squeeze one more in. Um, is there any type of testing performed on the foundation prior to placement of the fabric in the stone? No, I mean, other than if there's a compaction control, you know, requirement, but that's about it. Here's something I will add to that. Many of the bridges that we built are replacement structures. So we typically follow the stress history of the existing structure. The existing structure was there, it pretty much had the same dead load as the new structure. And so we're just, you know, we may in some cases we're adding less dead load to the foundation than we were to the previous structure because of the uniqueness of the IBS. Right. Okay, there's probably still 15 questions left. 
So we will schedule a future podcast to address all the remaining questions and the questions we receive after this webinar during, that can be submitted through the webinar survey that will be sent to everybody shortly after the webinar. So please, if you have additional questions, submit them through the survey and we will have a follow-up podcast maybe in a week or so to answer all the questions. And then the recording of Jennifer and Mike's answers to those questions will be posted with their webinar. So uh, Jennifer, can you go to the last uh, slides? Yes. Okay, great. Here's uh, Mike Adams and Jennifer Nix's contact information and email address and mine as well. If you have additional questions, you can send them to us directly. Jennifer, next, please. Uh, our next webinar is August 30th at noon central time, microplastics and geosynthetics, a very hot topic at the moment. Francesco Fontana will be the presenter. And so I hope you'll join us for that webinar. Last slide, Jennifer. The FGI website is available at fabricatedgeomembrane.com. The webinars are under the resources tab with, where it says webinar archives. And you can look at all the webinars that started in 2017, two years before the pandemic. Um, and they will be there as well as Jennifer and Mike's uh, webinar for today. So Jennifer and Mike, thank you so much for joining us and presenting GRS IBS to the group. And we look forward to your podcast in the future. Thank you very much. Let's thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Jennifer. See ya. Bye.